Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. We, of course, welcome those who join us on our heritage.org website on all of these occasions. For our in-house guests, we would ask that last courtesy check that our mobile devices have been silenced or turned off. And, of course, our visitors online are welcome to send questions or comments at any time simply emailing speaker at heritage.org. And, of course, we will post the program on the Heritage homepage for everyone's future reference as well. Leading the discussion and welcoming our special guest is Arthur Millick. Mr. Millick serves as the Associate Director and Research Fellow in our B. Kenneth Simon Center for Principles and Politics. Arthur? Uh, welcome, everyone. Thanks so much for coming out today. Uh, in Washington, you can find an expert in every small thing. Innumerable Washington experts can tell you how a senator should vote on a particular bill, or if and when the Senate will flip parties, or what to do about a filibuster. But when you seek experts with developed opinions about the very purpose of the Senate as an institution, its role in preserving the Republic, and whether it's fulfilling its purpose today, in a town of experts, the experts become scarce. Indeed, our confusion about the purpose of the Senate is reflected in how it operates today. It works irregularly, just a few times a week, while spending much time on raising money. It passes almost no laws, it has almost no debates, though everyone involved, without fail, collects a salary, of course. This has become the status quo to such a degree that few question it. And if the Senate's operations today accurately reflect its original purpose, one wonders whether it's worth preserving. Now, its current condition is accounted for by nearly a century of delegating its powers to an administrative state. But beyond this, we've forgotten how to think about institutions in general and what they should contribute to our republic. No one guides it, and so it slowly slides in the wrong direction. To help us revive and deepen our understanding of the Senate's purpose and to think through what fundamentally ails it today, we've invited Richard Samuelson. He is Associate Professor of History at California State University, San Bernardino. He has written extensively on the political thought of the American founding and the Adams family, as in John Adams. His essays and reviews have appeared in uh, the William and Mary Quarterly, the Review of Politics, the Public Interest, Claremont Review of Books, commentary, the Weekly Standard, every place that you can imagine he's probably written there, and he's currently working on a book on John Adams and the rule of law. Please welcome Professor Samuelson. Thank you. Thank you for all for being here. Um, I just saw, in light of this topic this morning, um, apparently Tom Wolfe passed away. And um, we're talking about he, of all people, wrote about men are status-seeking creatures. And that's, I suppose, the key to Adam's view of the Senate. It is supposed to channel our status-seeking among the would-be elites and get them to serve us while serving their own ambition. And that seems to be off right now. I mean, the election of Donald Trump signifies many things, but... It doesn't happen if everything is hunky-dory, right? or as Rusty Reno said in his most recent uh, column, Trump is an enema for the political system, right? But what exactly is going on? I think one thing, this, the Dempsey analysis, because John Adams focused on your would-be elite, is that there's something off between those who have... A, power sway in our society and our political institutions. And when they're outlined, Adams is kind of a Shakespearean view. 
when one bit in the natural order is out of whack, it throws everything out of whack. All right? And consider you have this on both, both sides of the political aisle, right? Or to be a bit flip about it, in Mel Brooks' History of the World, Part 1, a courtier runs up to King Louis and says, King Louis, the people are revolting. And he said, you said it. They stink on ice. Right? Of course, that's the attitude that many conservative voters at least seem to think that our elites have. And they respond in kind. Right? And then there are those who think the problem is our elites stink. Right? Think of our, or revolting, at least. Think of Christopher Lash's book of now 20 years ago, The Revolt of the Elites and the Betrayal of Democracy. Right? And of course, the more ideological folks on the left nowadays th- talk of people, the need to check your privilege. The problem with that from the indemnity perspective is privilege doesn't need to be checked, it needs to be checked and balanced. Right? This is the ch- question, right? There will be privilege, there will be status, there will be inequalities. How do you manage it? And that's the fight that goes all the way back to the founding era, right? What to do about inequality? Where will it lie? Will there be inequalities of power? And that's part of the argument, the question of the Senate, right? That's what it's supposed to be for. Because at the moment, consider what's going on to green our politics, right? You have billionaires like the Koch brothers or George Soros spending I gather, hundreds of millions of dollars to influence politics. We just saw recently George Soros is spending millions and millions to try to elect state attorneys general. There's a difference between, say, an entrepreneur spending money on one issue, I think the capitalists who back the anti-slavery movement, or, for example, lobbying for their own industry, and contrast that with trying to reshape or redirect our politics in Soros's understanding a more progressive direction to it, we would say, or in the case of the Koch brothers, a more libertarian direction, right? It's problematic when people doing that are entirely, pretty much, for practical purposes, outside the political system. We want them front and center, in power, and on stage, and also squaring off against each other in a confined space, right? As opposed to uh, billionaire proxy wars in politics is not what we are supposed to be having, that's part of the problem. There's a dis, there's a misalignment in our politics between the exercise of power and our political system. At least that would be the Nebsey analysis, I think. Consider one little bit from Adams, which might describe the Trump election. He's talking about a bit in Roman history. This whole story is a demonstration of the oppression of the people under an aristocracy the extreme jealousy of that aristocracy of kings, of an oligarchy, and of the of popular power, of the constant secret wishes of the people that set up a king to defend them against the nobles, and their readiness to fall in with the views of any rich man who flattered them and set him up as a monarch. That is to translate from the Roman, right? Essentially, when you have a runaway elite, what's going to happen, and has happened regularly in history, is the common people will set up somebody who basically can manage them. They will pick someone to be a dictator to bash the elites back into line. Right? Or to put another view, Adams is kind of like the father in the big fat Greek wedding, if you saw that movie. Any word you know, he can find a Greek root for it. Doesn't matter, right? Any society you find, Adams can find the one, the few, and the many. There is someone with the most power. There is an elite group. He would call them the aristocratic group in more classic terms. Now, one thing about phenomena in democratic society like ours, we're uncomfortable talking about this subject. It's in our language. We use the word elite instead of aristocracy. Or take another popular term, foodie, instead of gourmand or epicurean. Right? It's the same thing, but it, it seems to take away the aristocratic pretension. Not really, but that's the conceit at least. Right. So what you have here right, is there is a would-be elite that doesn't recognize itself as such. It's part of the problem. The pushback is, what do you mean I'm elite? I think, wasn't that um, Bob Dole's uh, 96 convention speech where he says uh, this, you know, something elite that was an elite that never grew up, right? And Clinton says, what do you mean elite? Oh, elite. Well, let's see, you went to Georgetown, you went to Oxford. What do you mean, Bill? <laughs> right? Depends how you define it. But Americans are very good at kind of pushing that aside. 
right? And so it's, this goes back to the founding. Adams is the guy who said, no, there's going to be an elite. You might as well just call them aristocracy because it's the term we've used going back for a couple thousand years, right? Of course, Adams had a funny definition of it. It's someone with more than average of power would be his definition of, an arist- of the aristoi. But that's, he was thinking of it kind of as a, as a signifier, right? So that's kind of by way of introduction. Now, what exactly is the problem? Well, back to the founding, there was a question. What's a Senate for? And there was an open question. Why have one? The French philosophers, Turgot in particular, come say they push back. You're imitating England. They have a House of Lords, so you want to you want to have a Senate, a second house. Why? Right? Adam says, no, 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 it's because it works. That's why you want to have a second house. There's a place for it. Right? And that's the purpose of it. this was an active live debates. If you want to go back to the Constitutional Convention, think the the Virginia plan Madison had introduced at the start of the Constitutional Convention. Right? The lower house selected the upper house. The two of them selected the executive. That might not actually work so well in terms of checking and balancing. You might have kind of the, the house concentrating power. On June 6th of 1787, during the convention, Madison writes Jefferson, who was then in Paris. Adam's book, his, the first volume of the Defense of the Constitutions, he says, has decided a good deal of attention. It will probably be much read, particularly in the eastern states, the eastern states being the term they use for New England, because it goes east, right? And contribute with other circumstances to revive the predilections of this country for the British Constitution. The book also has merit, and I wish many of the remarks of it, which are unfriendly to republicanism, may not receive fresh weight, right? That is, the wisdom in the book might, unfortunately, draw people in and they'll be corrupted, right? But what happened that day in the convention? That was the day in which John Dickinson gave an account of why what became the Connecticut Compromise made sense. Dickinson considered it an essential, as essential that one branch of the legislature should be drawn immediately from the people. That's right. And as expedient, the other should be chosen by the legislature of the state. What would be the Connecticut Compromise? This combination of state governments with a national government was as politic as it was unavoidable. In the formation of the Senate, we ought to carry it through such a refining process as will assimilate as near may be to the House of Lords in England. He repeated his encomium to the British Constitution. I suspect the reason it was that day that Madison complained about the baleful influence of Adams is that he realized he had lost the debate over the Virginia plan that day because you had now not just the small states saying, stomping their feet, and saying, we demand to still keep one vote, keep one state, one vote, you had a theoretical justification that was plausible. So it was no longer just a matter of force. There was actually a reasonable account. right? You had representing the states on the one hand, proxies for the House of Lords. That's a really galled Adams. I guess Gaul would be the wrong country, but close enough. right? Um, and then you have the House representing the people. Madison wanted them both representing the people. Right? And of course, you can make a case. This is more or less what the Senate became in the 19th century, at least the first half of that, when it was perhaps the world's greatest deliberative body. You know, no more, really. We need Clay and Webster, Calhoun, Robert Hayne, the others, would give speeches of heroic length, and people would listen. Right? Nowadays, they go on for more than five minutes. Right? They start, people start looking at their phones, and part of that is probably modern attention spans, but there's more to it than that. Right. Think about how the system worked then. Right. And pretty much every, just about every successful winning presidential candidate from Monroe to Lincoln had been a senator. Lincoln was not, but he became president because of the most famous senatorial campaign in American history. The general Taylor was not a, a senator who was elected. And then William, and then Polk had been, well, Speaker of the House, not Senator. But this is kind of as close as you can get. So the Senate was the heart of the system. It, the senators were the swingmen. Why? Well, back then, the states elected the senators, state legislatures. So you had the swingmen between the state parties, the state political apparatus, and the federal per- political apparatus directly 
on board. Right? In some cases, people like Clay, the leadership said, I'm going to Washington and I'll keep tabs on things. In other cases, the true leader of the state party was actually in the state and they sent someone to Washington to be their errand boy, so to speak. Right? But there was this tie sewing the political system together across the country that way. That's kind of how it was supposed to work. Now, afterward, I mean, it became corrupted, as Henry Adams would joke in his novel Democracy of the 1880s. You know, democracy is government of the people, by the people, for the benefit of senators. It became somewhat corrupted, right? But that was what was supposed to go on. Now, think about, let's go back to, pardon the long quote, but I think it's useful. Let's find the exact page. Lost my page here. Um, Early in the defense of the Constitution, Adams writes, it has become kind of, this is kind of Tom Friedman of On the Left, right? His China for a Day column. It has become a kind of fashion among writers to admit as a maxim, if you could always be sure of a wise, active, and virtuous prince, monarchy would be the best of governments. But this is so far from being admissible that it will forever remain true that a free government has a great advantage over a simple monarchy. The best and wisest prince, by means of a freer and freer communication with his people and the greater opportunities to collect the best advice from the best of his subjects, would have an immense advantage in a free state over a monarchy. Right? What would the best monarch want? He'd want good advice from good people. How do you make sure that happens? You've got to have a body there anyway, right? Essentially. A Senate consisting of all his most noble, wealthy, and able in the nation with the right to counsel the crown at all times is a check to ministers. And security against abuses, such as a body of nobles who never meet and have no such right, can never supply. Right? You don't want the nobles out there on their own. Be part of the system. And another assembly, composed of representatives chosen by the people in all parts, gives free access to the whole nation, communicates all its wants, knowledge, projects, and wishes to government. It excites emulation among all classes, removes complaints, redresses grievances, affords opportunity to, of exertion of genius, though in obscurity, and gives full scope to all the faculties of man. It opens a passage for every speculation to the legislature, to administration, to the public, gives a universal energy to the human character in every part of the state, such as never can be obtained in the monarchy. I think the key term there is emulation, an old 18th century term. People look to each other and are drawn up. Right? You look at the person ahead of you in the chain that pulls you forward into the system. Right. So the house... Members of the House look to the Senate. There's the old joke, right? When they play hail to the chief in the Senate, a hundred hearts start fluttering, right? Of course, I so much said that joke. I think this, I can't remember, this is when I was back here as a student in 1990. And so I said, no, one of the senators was born abroad. He says 99, right? But um, that's because we want to move up. It's human nature. Use that natural ambition to serve us. So we forget. We often say that Politics is downstream from culture, and that's often true. But Adams would argue, in a classic Aristotelian fashion, I suppose, that culture is downstream from politics. Laws and institutions shape our character, the character of our political actions, of our political culture in particular, even our moral culture. Right? And what's askew, the Adamsian analysis would suggest, is partly there's a misalignment between those with well, power and place in our society and our political system. They're kind of outside. They can spin their, we can spin their wheels on the outside and the inside, but they don't always connect. Right? So what's the purpose of emulation? Draw people in and up. Think about my bizarre proposition. Put the Koch brothers, George Soros, other Zuckerberg, perhaps, Zuckerberg perhaps in the Senate. Well, what's going to happen there? Well, there'll be, you don't want your elites outside politics or your power centers. You want them in politics, right? You want them on stage. You want them accountable. And you want them fighting each other. They're not going to agree, even more so when they're right in front of each other. Ego. They each want, they'll, they'll each want to be the person in charge, right? Rather than being on the sidelines, doing things at a distance, right? Put them front and center. That's the goal. That's what's supposed to be happening. Instead, people spin their wheels outside of politics. The emulation doesn't take place because you can't see what's going on. The goal is to put people 
who have power on stage, to go back to the Shakespearean metaphor, we should be able to watch them. So they serve us, not the opposite. Right? And that seems to be the danger. Right? Or now put this another way. Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler famously talk about nudge. We are rational in predictable ways. I mean, that's exactly what Adam said. Except above all else, the people who need to be nudged in a political system are the people who think they're smart. Sure, typical citizen, we all need it, we do irrational things. But those who are in power, more than anything else, are liable to abuse it in very predictable ways. And a a properly created system of checks and balances will actually use those tendencies after the fashion of jujitsu to push people back into line. Right? And that's where this, Adams calls, speaks of the passion for distinction, going back to Tom Wolfe, our desire to be seen, to have status, to be loved. Right? It's above all else, the desire to be seen and to be loved. I think this is his pushback against the peaceniks of his day. It's all about peace, love, and brotherhood. He's like, no, 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 no. To be loved will kill the other guy. <laughs> love is a jealous passion. It's not going to bring us all together. It has to be carefully managed, right? But it can be used, right? But this is not the only view from the founding, by the way. And this is partly what we're, why Adams was in some ways pushed aside in his view. You don't want to have an aristocracy, Madison and others would say, right? Or when thinking about this talk, I almost say, what's Adams' view? Essentially, like poop, our elite happens. Elitism happens, right? But what do you want to do with poop? Get it rid of it, right? That was kind of the belief of the other side in these debates, right? Adam says, no, it's, that's the wrong analogy, right? He calls the aristocrats, they are monsters, but they're very useful monsters if they are properly managed. As a few scholars have pointed out, that flips the ancient metaphor, where the people are as Hamilton may have said, it's, we have a third-hand account by the son of Theophilus Parsons recorded in the 1850s, right? The people are the great beast. That's kind of the classic one, the people are rational. Adams flipped that on his head by saying, no, no, and he's not the only one to have done that. There was a tradition of saying that um, at the time, right? So you have to watch out for the would-be elites. They're the ones who need to be nudged, right? Of course, in our day and age, they claim not to be political. They claim they're experts using science, and are not being political at all. Right. Um, the kicker is nowadays, we don't believe in the 20th, in the start of the 20th century, people thought there's new sciences, etc. You invented the social science PhD, you have a coherent, practical, non-political account of things. With the rise of postmodernism dominating the academy, it's interesting that people still take that idea seriously. <laughs> Right. On the one hand, the most modern idea that everything's a proxy for some power. On the other hand, what is the claim for people with PhDs to be governing, if not that they're neutral, politically neutral? Pick one, right? <laughs> of course, Adams would go to back to the older account. Right? If you want to take another example to see how Adams would, what we're, what we're getting at, um, I'm trying to get at, why the Senate's not quite in its place. And part is capping the number of senators, capping the number of representatives. Um, Jonah Goldberg, he's not the only one to say this, but he said several years ago, we should have a House of Representatives of thousands. Right? Think of the distinction then, right? The senator is a much bigger person. You really want to try to knock out the walls on a thought experiment. Suppose we went back and had 26 senators back to the original numbers. We had you know, from regions, essentially. And you had 1,500, 2,000 congressmen. Then the distinction would be huge. To be a senator would be to be, you know, one of the the, the few, the proud, the, the one of the proud, right? One of the most important people. Obviously, it would be an aspiration. One impact that might happen from Mr. Trump's election, by the way, might be that well, you're not really any good as a billionaire unless you also hold a big office, right? There could be a movement actually, right? Back in the country clubs, say, well, you know, <laughs> to push into politics, people being imitative. Right. It could be that sort. And then what happens if you get, it becomes a thing. I mean, you had John Corzine, you have some over the years, right? That are really big, our biggest businessmen have to be in the Senate. What happens at the state level? The state level people, some of the same thing. And so you line up the whole system the same way, like a chiropractor lining up bones in your back, right? That's what I've heard. I've actually never been to one, right? So they, they try to get everything in line as opposed to, now that is, that's the goal. 
or I could take another way of thinking about it. Suppose we created a Congress or a government of all the Americas. Right? And there was a House of Representatives based on population from each country. Two senators from each country. They would be very distinguished people. Right? We like them or not, they would be. The other thing, though, that's missing here is what Arthur mentioned in his introduction, the political aspect of it. You have people from very different political systems deciding what are the issues that we want to actually to address in the political center versus locally. Right? And one, that's another aspect that's related somehow that I haven't quite incorporated yet. And that is what Arthur mentioned, the rise of administrative power and also the creation essentially of a federal police power, regulating health, safety, morals from the center. If the Senate is supposed to be the proxy of lords based on delegates from the states, but the federal government is in fact regulating our life front to back. And remember, even Alexander Hamilton said that there is no federal police power. That's in his defense the constitutionality of the bank. You can have a bank because that takes care of our budget issues, defense, whatever. But you couldn't create a corporation to regulate the police of Philadelphia because there is no federal police power. Interestingly, he made the same case discussing the British Empire in 74, 75. He was kind of, that was his version of the line. Right? So it's about, there is that aspect, the federalism aspect, I haven't quite gotten to, but that's the, the key feature. Right? You want to have an elite house, in a sense. So we can want, look after, we can watch out for what the people who want to exercise authority in our society are going to, will do. And the kicker is you have to acknowledge there is going to be, there are going to be inequalities of power and wealth. The rich will always be with us, right? To flip the biblical phrase on its head, right? Therefore, it is a political problem that has to be managed. Going back to Rousseau, right? The origin of inequality. Adams would say, what's the, what's, what's the source of inequality? Nature. That's a human, human life is that way. Where you find human beings, you find inequalities. And therefore, government has to reflect that. And if your governing structure, institutional structure, reflects it in a coherent way, you'll have a moderate regime. If there is considerable disjunction between the centers of power, in fact, in society, and those in your government, there will be trouble. Right? To take one final bit on the institutional aspect. You know, Adams borrows from James Harrington this basic metaphor for Checks and balances, right? He takes Harrington's book of two, two little girls sharing a piece of cake. My brother and myself did this when we were, when we were kids. Right, what do you do? Well, you give one person the knife, they cut the piece of cake, and the other one picks which piece they get. So you have an interest in a fair division. It's a rough justice. I mean, there could be justification for getting more than the other. And of course, as a practical matter, you always want the other person to cut the cake because you never cut it down the middle. That's my recollection, at least, right? But what's the purpose of that? It, well, first of all, you need a third power there, by the way. Right? My brother's bigger than me. He'd punch me and take the cake. My mom was not. Right? Basically. Right? So this is actually, there's the Voltaire version of this. If there's one religion in England, there'd be tyranny. If there are two, there'd be civil war. But there's 30 and there's peace. That's actually the extended sphere. Madison's fond of quoting that. But with only two, you have civil war. If two, you need a third power to make the balance work. Hence, you have the three branches. You have three branches of the legislature, Adam says, you the Senate, House, and Executive with a veto. Right, but what happens getting back from institutions setting up our culture? At the end of the Defense Constitution, the right of the last couple last paragraph, it's a long paragraph, I can't remember where the break is off the top of my head. It says, Who knows, but you know, the best governments have been virtuous and will be such. And who knows, but you can't create a republic of highwaymen. You know, Whalen and Willie, you know the people, crooks on the highway, by setting one rogue to watch the other and forcing them to create a fair division by dividing and choosing. And they might be made honest men in the process. Right? That is to say, the institutional arrangements, if they are right, Adams would think, will force moderation, a rough justice, and through that into the system, through the system of checks and balances, It'll force the system into line. Right? That's the purpose of a well-ordered political regime. This, the institutional approach Adams took is that the institutional structures will shape to a degree 
the character of your political system. Now, it's not a coincidence, right in the middle of the first book of the defense, right when he finished up discussing political theory, he has a big section, extract of basically all of book eight and the start of book nine of Plato's Republic, the character of the regimes, right? And so he's looking at how does the character of your regime shape the character of your citizens. Now, then he goes to the institutional aspect, looks at the history, your examples of it. But he's getting at that, and I think, it's a brief criticism of my colleagues, the cultural turn in history, our bias is to think culture causes culture. Prior events produce current events. Prior phenomena produce current phenomena, right? That's Dorothy Ross's definition of historicism, basically, right? Adams would say, actually, no, actual choices matter by actual statesmen, right? That is, certain institutional arrangements will produce certain types of political culture. So the political culture of, say, the, the young republic is partly an artifact of the kind of institutions they chose to create with the Constitution. And they knew they were doing that. So the study of statesmanship in the founding is not just a study of laws and constitutions. It's the study of how they are thinking about how they are going to create a kind of political culture. And I think that's the line of thought that we're missing. And maybe I'm getting it all wrong, but I think there's something, I don't think Adam's all wrong. That line of thought is worth considering. That the character and the institutions you have shape the character of political discourse you have and whether it is moderate or flailing widely. And his basic view, I think, if there is misalignment between the centers of power in your system and your actual political system, there will be trouble, just as in a Shakespearean tragedy, when one planet is off, the whole universe is off. And so in Adam's view, right, there's the old line we talk about, political scientists do at least, presidential systems and parliamentary systems, but not all presidential systems are equal. There are many different ways to have a president. For Adams, the key in the United States Constitution was not the president, although he was definitely a supporter of a big unitary executive. It was having a Senate as the balance, as the check, the check on the ministers and the check on the president. Right? And perhaps part of the problems we're dealing with is we've taken our elite. Nowadays, they're no longer our senators. There are, well, elite businessmen, the people at the top of our think tanks, right? Our advisors are outside of the political system, maybe looking in, lobbying in with ideas, but they're not really the people in the center. And so the Adamsian analysis would be that's kind of one of the problems in our system. That's why we're flailing immoderately, is our institutions are misaligned from the practical politics of things. Thank you. Hi, um, is this on? Yeah. Uh, my name is Alex O'Connor and I'm from the office of Marco Rubio. And so you, I think you really articulated very well how the problem occurred and like what the problem is, but what can be done both from an outside force, but also from internally, like what can the government do to perhaps realign the two axes of power and what can be done from the outside to also ensure that? That's, that's, that's the challenge of the poor historian. Um, that's part of the challenge. That's a very good question. Thank you. Um, one phenomenon we do have is the administrative state, which Arthur mentioned is a reduction. That is, consider the um, recent application, or 10 years ago now, of the 19, Clean Air Act from the 19, Clean Water Act from the 1970s to apply to greenhouse gases. That's not very democratic, not very Republican. You have people working for the, the executive branch decide, taking a 40-year-old law and saying, we have a new problem, we'll just apply it. In theory, when you have a real new, you know, if it's a, if it's a, if it's a tweak, okay, we didn't realize that's a pollutant, we now realize it's a pollutant, fine. But they're kind of redefining globally what is a pollutant to include the concern about global warming. That should be, that's supposed to be something that's going, that goes through the political process. I mean, there's no accountability if you can just, otherwise you're an autopilot. Remember, the, there's a reason why the common law frowned on perpetuities. Right? It's the same problem, the dead hand of the past. People are still governing. Jefferson thought you should sunset every constitution after 19 years. So the people had to consent actively to it. No. The pushback is, well, then the constitution will be unstable. 
But maybe you sunset, one thing you could start with, sunset log rulemaking power globally after 19 years, maybe 10 years. You have to go back to Congress to reauthorize, and then you rethink, is it the same things we're concerned about? Are there new issues? Then at least the political process is involved because you have the myth that this is apolitical. Um, I don't buy it. I mean, people, this is part of the argument, by the way. Is it just apolitical? Everyone agrees to this or not? But they, I think one, one thing you could do is push the authorization of authority back through Congress as opposed to allowing the bureaucracy to run an autopilot for generations on end. I mean, that, that can't be good for a Republican system. We, the people, should actually be consented if we're going to have a significant change in policy. Uh, Terry Miller with the Heritage Foundation. <clears throat> you haven't really mentioned the 17th Amendment. Is that the poison pill that that turned uh, the Senate into something different from what it was intended to be? I've been trying to get my head around just to a degree that made a big difference, right? Taking Because that meant the, the state political organizations were not explicitly since choosing the senators or vice versa. The senators who were in charge of the organization were not deciding if they were going to go or someone to go kind of in for them. And that was, of course, the change was already coming. Senators are already being elected directly in several states when the amendment passed. But it did, it, it, it didn't help. Um, I also think capping the size of the Senate might be too big to do its function, ironically, as I suggested, and the House might be too small. It might be an artifact of the dynamic between the two houses collapses when they are so close in size. Um, but yeah, the, the, it doesn't help to have the direct election of senators. I don't see how that gets overturned either. It's very unlikely that's going to change by the way. But it is one of the one of the things that's changed in our system in the change in the progressive era hundred years ago, right? That um, the part is the senators are no longer in a sense proxies from the state governments and from the state political organizations. And that makes them a different type of doing the, they have a different institutional base, which means their understanding of, of their job is different. Um, Tocqueville talks about the uh, advantages of a monarch that you sometimes get uh, a very intelligent, uh, remarkable person, but the problem is uh, that that person dies, and then you don't know who comes next. And so an aristocratic body, as he says, is a kind of replacement for a monarch, that um, it's supposed to be a class unto itself that understands that it has a particular destiny, a particular particular duties uh, to a nation, and it uh, is stable so that it can regenerate itself. And so that, you know, if you look at the history of uh, England, you know, from like Shakespeare until uh, Churchill, 400 years of the production of steadily remarkable human beings, world historic remarkable human beings. And uh, so anyways, that's the advantage of an aristocracy. But Tocqueville's uh, argument in part is that such a thing is just totally impossible in America. Uh, the uh, uh, the spirit of the public predominates, its tastes predominate, and you end up with sort of the distinction that you said in the beginning, uh, which is not an aristocracy. It's just an elite, uh, which is uh, – uh, you, you say that we don't call it an aristocracy because um, we're too democratic to call it that. But it's just a cognitive elite that may have – uh, you know, uh, higher IQs sometimes or has just gone through the right pedigrees, but they have no real education, no real understanding of their duties. Uh, and Tocqueville's point is that that's all you can hope for in a way, and it'll never be an aristocracy. So what what, what would Adams' uh, response to that be? Well, that's right. This is the, the 18th century science aspect of Adams. He takes an empirical definition. The aristocrats, by his definition, would be the few. There are going, there's going to be people with more than the average of power. Well, they're not the common people. They're the aristocrats. Now, Arthur's pushing back saying that's just not a reasonable definition. And you need to have titles. What's interesting about the English aristocracy compared to, say, the French is in England, only the eldest son got the title, which meant all the other guys had to scramble. Churchill's line, right? They had to scramble to do something. If you're raised in the, in, you know, in the manor, you're true the manor born, but you know you're not inheriting everything. You better get off your ass and work. I mean, some broke down, but some of them they really pushed because they had to, you know, they, they didn't want to lose their status completely. And so they were, that institution actually had an impact on the ambition of 
the sons of the, arist- of the aristocracy. I, I would not, you can make it, you could do an interesting piece comparing the French and the English aristocracy on that line. Um, but in America, the, 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 the Tocqueville question, right? That's the interesting thing, right? What do we do? Because we don't want to have that. I mean, you have the, the Adams, you don't have, you do have, you know, the, was the Frailing How You had the, every now and then you had, was it one family that's, which family was it that had one congressional seat in Jersey from the founding period, basically? Um, but that's very rare, right? The last Adams, the major job was Secretary of Navy under FDR, right? Although one of them founded Raytheon as well, if I remember correctly. Um, so there's, um, it's something we have trouble with, but how do you have a responsible, well-educated elite that does the job they're supposed to do? Of course, how do you make sure the, the aristocracy doesn't say, woohoo, I won the birth lottery. I get to have a fun life, right? That's also a problem, right? Adam's argument is you have to have something nudging everybody involved to do things, right? Um, or it's not going to happen. Um, the other turn that probably doesn't have to do with what I've been talking about is, um, if I remember correctly, when Facebook went public on the stock exchange, just before that, one of the big founders moved out of the country so he wouldn't have to pay U.S. taxes. Right? And this is someone, if I remember correctly, he came here for college, met Zuckerberg, and then went abroad. I was thinking, would Harvard today teach someone there's anything wrong with doing that? Should you care about any country in particular? particularly the one that helped you prosper? I don't think that line of thought of patriotism, of gratitude, of obligation is being taught in our institutions, right? And you need to have those ideas or you can't have wherever you're going to have a, if you, if it's an elite, not an aristocracy, a reasonable, accountable, responsible elite. And again, I wonder if the, the Adamsian view would be if there's an institutional push to pull people in the Senate, you have, I work my buns off to get to the Senate and, you know, I'm going to make sure my institutions actually think it's a good thing to be in this country where I did this, right? Is that, is that, would that make a difference in terms of our political pushes? Would it draw people, maybe I'm pushing too far, into the system and want to defend their own work? If you spend your whole life kind of outside the system, you're part of international class that doesn't feel a particular identity because you're not bound up with your institutions. That's that's as much an answer I can give you because the, the, there's two questions that I can't answer. One is how do you do that? And how do you, if I'm right that things are off, where's the fix? What can you do about it? Um, that's a real, that's the real challenge. It, it could be, you know, Adam's line is don't despair of the republic. Right? Something, we can figure out something. Of course, the Henry Adams line, his great-grandson, describing what happened in the War of 1812. Paradoxical as it may seem, there are times in politics where the common people will push through completely blindly. Somehow they will blunder through and come up with the answer that was necessary. Right? So maybe, maybe there's some hope in democracy in that sense. Right? Because, you know, the, well, for the classic view of statesmanship, which he had, the, the statesmanship of Madison Jefferson didn't quite make sense. You don't really need an army or navy. Um, we'll still be okay against England. And somehow it worked out, but it, it wasn't quite what they expected. And how do you feel about the person? Should the person be allowed to come and uh, come here and spend all his money or how do you feel about it? Well, what are we going to do about it? Right? Remember, Washington is very, very good on this in his um, proclamation to loyalists after they take back the big thing of the Trenton campaign, by the way, and the Princeton campaign is they flip New Jersey, which is kind of the center of the Union at that point in time. The British retreated from having outposts all the way across New Jersey, sorry, to having to being back in New York, right? And then Washington issues a proclamation to loyalists and say, look, we understand you, there was a lot of coercion involved. You, you, all you have to do is go to find a union, find an office in the army and certify that you're loyal. That's fine. But if you're so foregone and you, you want to be British, that's your right. The right to expatriate is fundamental to a country founded on natural right. You have the right to choose to be a citizen. You have the right to choose not to be a citizen and take your property with you. So in a principle standpoint, that's your right. I may think morally there's something interesting going on that's problematic. 
Legally speaking, it's your right to take your stuff with you and go. That's you know the the old world. You weren't allowed to. That's a difference America makes. Of course, it might be connected to citizenship by choice on the other side too, right? That you have to come here and choose to be a citizen rather than it being based on soil. That's that would be the argument um, some have made on the, the birthright question, but. Uh, but yeah, I don't see how I, I don't, as a legal standpoint, as, from a legal perspective, I don't think there's much. I don't want an exit tax. Um, I don't think that would be congruent with the principles of the regime. But I do want a culture where people think shame on him. <laughs> That's kind of where I stand. Thank you so much. Um, you said earlier that one of the concerns was. Um, when senators no longer were tethered to their state legislatures, you had a disconnect between the population and the senator. I'm a little unclear on why you believe bringing business elites who are typically not as grounded in local communities, as you say, uh, into the political system, why that would be a fix for that broken uh, chain there. That's because what I suspect would happen is they wouldn't kind of hell, they wouldn't kind of leap in like Corzine did. If it becomes normal, you have to start early in the system in order to be the guy who gets the opportunity. Um, yeah, if it's just people kind of, I made my billion, I'm going to jump into the Senate, that's not going to help. You're right. Um, the challenge is, though, is that is putting them through the system from the start. Um, that's the goal. Um, maybe it won't work at this point in time. There's just too, we're just too, too far away from that world. That's, that's possible. Um, but that's that's the challenge. But you do have people who there is a select group that really want to reshape our politics. There's some of an issue to here or there. That's one thing that doesn't seem to be a problem. But um, people who have a fundamental want to transform our politics fundamentally. Right. So then, if they is want it? to transform our politics fundamentally, why not erect barriers? Sorry. Why not erect barriers between them and the elected officials? For example, having uh, salaries increased in the Senate or having publicly funded elections, for example. Well, salary increase in the Senate, I think, is actually – Senate and House is a good idea, actually. I know it's not popular, but I think it would actually be useful. Adams is interesting. Um, you pay people in office. Otherwise, only the rich can get office. He's actually very yeah, – he's interesting on that issue because he's usually accused of being leadist, not on that issue, Right. And you probably have to pay well enough to get people who can be capable in office. That's true. Um, well, the, ch the challenge of public funding is then the government's going to decide who gets funded. And then you have an insular set of political institutions who decide who's part of the system. That's the challenge. right? And so maybe you're, the, the goal is actually to make an end run around that. If you're forcing the people throwing tons of money into politics into the system and they have different perspectives, then they check and balance each other without having to have the tyranny of the government saying, no, you can't use your money to, to spend on politics. I remember Citizens United was about a private group wanting to um, release a movie about uh, Mrs. Clinton right, before the 2008 election. Right? And they, the, the, the court, seems to me with reason, said, no, that has to be legal. Right? You can't. The, the, censoring a movie in the name of managing Money in campaigns is going, well, they threw out the whole thing, I think, for a reason, too. But that's the challenge, right? Uh, so it, the alternative, I don't think, would be much better because you want to have an open system. Thank you. Um, there are some suggestions at the time of the founding that the Senate and the president are supposed to be tied together pretty closely. Um, there are all these proposals for a council to be joined to the president. That doesn't happen. But then the Senate's small enough that it might kind of be the council. And Washington, right, he, he goes over to the Senate to talk about this treaty with the Creek Indians. So that goes nowhere. But there is some idea that maybe the Senate is supposed to be joined with the president. Um, that some people are talking about and writing about at the time of the founding. Would that connection, if it were drawn, between the president and the Senate today, would that help or advance kind of the vision of the Senate you're, you're proposing, or would that be a problem? Well, a 100 people in a council of state would be complicated. But the original right, Washington, did, what does this text the Constitution say? Advice and consent. So essentially he and Secretary of War Knox, because Jefferson's not 
all the way back from Paris yet to be Secretary of State, they go to the Senate to advise about the treaty with the Creek Indians. And the senators say, oh, whoa, 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 George, we, we, we can't have an open debate with you there. You've got to leave. And so Washington throws up his hands ultimately and says, well, this defeats my every purpose of coming here. And he leaves. And he leaves in a huff. As I like to say, in class, that's an 18th century car. No. Um, he gets angry and he leaves, right? And the result is the Senate actually rejected power without realizing it. They rejected their ability to be a council of state. And that became the precedent all the way down the line. They consent. They don't really advise. I mean, they can behind the scenes, a few people, leaders on the issues, and maybe, well, in the late 18th century, in the late 19th century, certainly on, they kind of managed the um, appointments to a great degree. But yeah, that, that, that would be one way to make a difference, particularly now with the rise of administrative bureaucracy, right? Because one thing Adams points out is they will watch out for the ministers. And so the people watching out for the regulations through the system, right? And now there's so much pushback, dragging feet about testifying, releasing paperwork, etc. You know, if it's someone who you're intimidated by, you're going to respond more quickly than someone who you respect less. So yeah, maybe that would actually be an interesting approach, but I'm not sure the current Senate as it's constituted would have that impact. Richard, I was wondering if you could respond <clears throat> to the following critique or what your response would be. Um, is it the case that in an advanced commercial republic, especially an industrialized one, that you can never really recover that um, center of influence that the Senate used to be? I mean, won't you always have um, vying both public and private centers of influence? Um, and the size of the Senate may be a partial solution, but the, the twin problem, I guess, these days, and you, you alluded to this, is that even if you, say, you reduced its size to 25, then it would be very preeminent. But you still can't really transform our politics from the Senate. Uh, if you can do it from anywhere, it's the presidency. So I wonder if you just comment on that. Not much of a question, but I'm interested in what you think. So we're back to the Montesquieu Diderot fight, the Taze Nobile versus the Taze Monarch, right? Um, essentially. Um, the... Well, you could say it's the opposite now, actually. Uh, this is, well, this is, might be part of our problem, actually. Because the notion of independent government has kind of run into a, was a formerly independent civil society. Right? And you don't have that. And so you go, you can argue that you don't just, you know, go live as you choose. That's less and less true. The government tells you what to do down the line in your business, in your daily, in daily life, even certainly who you interact with and on what terms, right? So you don't have that option. Or consider, used to be that for years, basically partly by coincidence and partly by, by kind of ironic design of Jefferson, the banking capital and the political capital of the United States were separate. That seems to have changed since 2008. Or it's a concern, at least. I mean, the bankers' Wall Street is still there. But so much authority over the financial sector is being asserted in Washington. Now, was it seven of the ten wealthiest counties in the U.S., something like that, or in the area here, right? So that, that's a key change. And I wonder if, they, if my pushback is actually we don't really – we're kind of post-industrial capitalism. We're moving towards a, a slightly different regime in which case this solution would have worked again and it wouldn't have worked 50 years ago. I mean, I, and part of me thinks I hope not because what that means for what's going on in America is deeply problematic. But it might be what's what we're seeing.